this is Secret Sauce, a podcast about the secret ingredients in artwork and life. I'm your host, Becca Borelli. I'm also an illustrator in Austin, Texas, and this episode is entitled Art Kid. <sighs> Welcome back. It's it's chilly here in Austin. I, I know a lot of you listening are from Austin, but I know a lot of you are not. I know there's folks in all parts of the states and also a few out of the states. Um, but I feel like most of the United States is sort of getting a cold spot here. Um, it's in the twenties today here in Austin, which is considered extreme temps. They close school in the morning today. (laughs) Like the Cleveland, Ohio side of me thinks that's hysterical, but I also know that if it ever became 105 in Cleveland, they would absolutely close schools and I and Austinites would never do that because 105 is par for the course in the summertime so it's considered extreme cold here but you know we're all hanging out we're staying warm and it's an awesome time to go inwards to have soup stay inside be cozy think about things deeply and today's topic is one of the things that's really been noshing around I've been noshing around in my brain <laughs> that's kind of a weird way to put it but um for the last three weeks and I want to share it with you because it's an interesting segue from last week's episode if you haven't listened to it you might enjoy listening to last week's episode before this one but I do want to refresh a little bit so you don't have to and talk a little bit about what today's title is referring to there is a famous quote that I've mentioned in other podcasts before that comes from Pablo Picasso about children and he's talked about children in a variety of different famous quotes, but this one is one that's pretty well known. He said, it took me four years to learn to paint like Raphael, but a lifetime to paint like a child. And I've mentioned this before, but I want to mention it again. I don't think, I think a lot of people, when they hear that phrase, it's beautiful, right? And I think because Pablo Picasso's cubist style looked decidedly childlike that what they're what he's referring to is the physical the physicality of his style being childlike maybe but I like to think and I suspect I suspect I'm correct I like to think that what he was referring to was less his physical art and more the way that he made stuff that he spent a lifetime learning how to act as a child artist would act to paint as a child artist would paint specifically in tandem with something bigger and I talk about this in many of the episodes in the past uh, few months especially but but last week I talked about my own reconnection with something bigger in grad school 12 years ago and it was at that time when I started doodling again, making whimsy and magical and mystical drawings again for the first time since sophomore year in high school, junior year in high school, um, that 
I realized that there was, in fact, an art kid that lives inside of me. And that's what today's episode is about. I want to talk about this because it is changing my life in lots of crazy ways at the moment because I have a human kid now and (laughs) Brayden is teaching me so much about my art kid because he's still in perfect communion with his and my art kid is in heaven because Brayden is teaching me how to reconnect with her in ways that she's been craving since you know 1996 (laughs) so I want to talk about that a little bit today I want to talk about how A lot of the interesting research coming out on raising young children is relevant to working with our art kids. I want to talk about what our kids even are. I want to talk about how all of us have them. And I want to talk about what it feels like to commune with them. (laughs) I want to talk about what it feels like not to commune with them. And the reason why I suppose this episode feels important to me especially recently, is because I've been interestingly getting more opportunities for consulting, which has surprised me. I haven't taken up anyone on the opportunity yet because I just I don't have time. <laughs> but I've had a few folks since the fall reaching out about a consulting relationship. And I've had a, some chats, just like 15-minute chats with them. And ultimately, you know, have kind of said, look, you know, if if it works out to do some partnership together, I'll let you know later this year. But the one piece of advice that I feel is really important for anybody who is looking for some type of art-making support, looking for any art-making support of any kind, <laughs> is to find your kid and re-cultivate a relationship with your kid. I feel like that is... Th- in many ways, the most important thing. And it's not all unicorns and rainbows and roses over here, y'all. Working for yourself is really, really stressful and really hard in a lot of ways. But I want to talk about the way that handing over the reins to your art kid is hugely important when it comes to making the stuff that you really are here to make because that's what your art kid that's what their primary function is and I think that's why Picasso spent a lifetime trying to recommune with his art kid when you are in deep communion with your art kid you are making art flawlessly with something that's bigger in exactly the way that you intended to make it when you came here. Your art kid knows from the moment that you breathe your first breath what you're here to make. Um, Brayden is so connected to that thing. He has no stress around anything that his art kid wants to do. Him and his art kid are totally connected to the point where they're barely separate at all at this point. That type of energy, not surprisingly, 
And I think all of us could agree with this, whether we are on board with the idea of an art kid or not at this point in the podcast episode. I think all of us can agree with this statement that I'm about to make, which is that type of energy, the energy that our art kid brings into our lives is in many ways one of the greatest threats to the status quo that we have on earth right now. You know, a a planet full of humans deeply in relationship with their art kid and therefore something bigger. Um, I mean, that would change the status quo overnight. And so whether it's intentional or conscious or not, those who are deeply embedded in the current system that we have have an objective to quash people's art kits. And so it ha- I mean it starts to systemically happen pretty early on. I mentioned have mentioned this before but early on in high school, I, I really started to get this messaging from my art teachers. And by the way, these are not malicious, messed up people. Um, even, I mean, even necessarily people that, I wouldn't even call them people that drank the Kool-Aid necessarily. My senior year art, art four teacher, like was one of my most favorite art teachers in K through 12. He really cared about kids. He had a PhD. He was so knowledgeable and he had, he had built this wicked art program. I remember a friend of a friend of mine who's also now a working artist and she, she and I went to school together in high school talking about his program our senior year we were casting metal jewelry in his class we were screen printing series of t-shirts um doing like huge wood sculpture pieces he was cool and like that may sound a little less wild now but in the 90s that was unheard of like our programs like that just were so incredibly rare we were really lucky this was an excellent teacher and there was an energy that he brought to commu- to communication with me that my art kid heard loud and clear. And this is, I think, a really good example how many of us experience interactions with the world, how many of our art kids experience interactions with the world. I, my art kid loved whimsy, mysticism, magic, unicorns and rainbows, fantasy colors swirls doodles doodles and doodles and doodles and doodles and I had just huge bodies of work with all of this stuff in it and my teacher rightfully so wanted to push me out of my comfort zone hey if you want to get into art school let's focus on the things that those schools want to see they want to see figure drawing they want to see still life they want to see composition value principles and elements of design like let's get you beefed up on these things and that wasn't the issue at all like especially now that I've become an art teacher I understand that side of it he was 100% correct in pushing me to do those things. Those things absolutely made 
my whimsical, doodly, fantasy-inspired style better. So much better. The problem was his energy. There was an energy in how he communicated with me that in some ways maybe did come a little bit from the collective Kool-Aid, which was like, hey, I know this was what you did when you were little, but this isn't, this isn't done now. You know, like, this is nice, but this is for kids, right? Like, it's not serious art. Like, and he didn't say that. It was very much an energy. And I think of him often um, because he was an art teacher that was so wonderful and I, I really respected. But that messaging came from lots of folks that I would experience later in college and also from other schools and other conversations that I had with friends and family. And and it was very unintentional and, and it was very much buried into the energy of the collective but that's what your art kid is very sensitive to. It's what makes them your art kid, right? Like they pick up on energy really, really well. And by the time I was entering my last year of high school, my art kid was talking a lot less to me. And admittedly, I was kind of like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. I got to be serious, you know? <laughs> and, then, and then I hit freshman year of graphic design in college and Anytime she tried to pipe up with like, let's make some unicorns today, I would literally tell her to shut the fuck up. I have a project due. You are literally ruining my life right now. And I know that it's harsh to hear me maybe use those words in this podcast episode, but I I guess I think it's important because I really did talk to her that way. Like that was the energy I brought to her. Like you need to go away. (laughs) I don't have time for you. I'm trying to be a serious artist, you know? And what's sad is that I didn't even really realize what was happening at the time, right? I mean, I was raised in a culture that doesn't talk about art kids or anything like this. And so it wasn't until I hit my mid to late 20s and and now I'm like steeped in this hyper-realistic, gritty, kind of edgy style that I've developed in my undergrad, completely different from what my art kid ever was. And... I realized that I don't really like it. I'm pretty unhappy. I really don't feel like making art anymore, but I'm like kind of forcing myself to do it. And I have this thought, and I think a lot of people have this thought as, you know, their art kid gets pretty quiet. <laughs> they assume that, they're, that there's like a part of themselves that has died now. And for most of us, you know, myself included, I would not have regarded that part as an art kid. But there was a sense when I was 27, 28, like, oh, I, there's an idealism that I used to have. And I don't think I have it anymore. I think it's just time to be an adult now. And I don't want to say that everyone has an arc, a life arc like this, but I think a lot of us do. I think all kids at some point in their young life, look around at the adults in the world that they inhabit and they go, fuck no, not me. I will be different. I will never be like them, right? And then you try to actualize that and realize that it's really hard. It's really hard. And at some point, You look around at your life and you see all of these aspects of your life that you never really wanted that are really similar to the adults that you didn't respect. And you think, oh, 
I guess I failed. And one of the easiest ways to deal with the pain of that is to tell yourself a story. And the story that I told myself, and I suppose other people tell a version of this story to themselves too, and that's, well, it's time to be an adult now, you know? And it was not not long after I told myself that that I completely stopped making art. It was just too painful. And I didn't even realize that that's what was happening. The story that I told myself at the time was I was way too busy with school teaching, which was also true. It wasn't a lie, but it was a convenient cover lie. <laughs> you know, it was, it was actually really just too painful to admit that I thought my art kid was dead. And I think a lot of us assume that even if we don't call it our art kid, (laughs) that there's a sense that this really pure childlike part of ourselves dies at some point. And if nothing else comes from this episode, by the way, like if you never really come on board with this art kid stuff and you're like, what are you talking about, Borelli? I don't get it. That's completely fine. If nothing else though, if, if only you take away this one thing, I hope it's this, and that is your art kid never dies (laughs) they are impossible to kill (laughs) they will they will be with you until you pass from this body and then they will go with you to the next place like they're with you forever but they will get silent if you demand it because they're kids and kids generally have to yield to the adults in the room they don't have the power to do otherwise. And that includes your kid, your art kid too. You know, and most of our art kids are pretty spicy. Mine sure was like, especially in high school. I I remember <laughs> sitting down with that teacher that I just told you about. And it was at the end of my senior year. And I was, I was like one of the top art students in my high school. I I was in art four, I was in advanced placement art, I was in independent study, I was making what I wanted, two periods a day, like it was awesome, you know? And there was this huge senior art show at the end of the year and I got to like put up all my work and oh, it was so cool. And I was sitting down with him to share with him what I wanted to put in the show. And I remember him going through and being kind of like, oh, it's another dragon, like, oh, another fantasy drawing, like, you know, and he's really kind of pushing me to do the the leaf still life that I thought was so incredibly boring or, and I remember, you know, him making all these suggestions and then I go home and kind of just ignored him. My art kid was so, she was like, she's like, cut it out, like, don't listen to him, like, it's not what you love. This is what you love. Like, this is what you should put into the show. And I remember, <laughs> I remember ignoring him because my art kid was, she was revolting, you know? And, and then subsequently during the art show, really noticing how childlike my display looked compared to all of the other art students who had, you know, taken his advice and had these like really sophisticated figure studies and things like that, you know? And, and I felt ashamed a little bit, just a little bit. And, and my art kid backed down a little bit after that. And I told her good, like, I, I want to be serious and I don't look serious right now. I, I look like a kid. 
And by the time, you know, I hit freshman year of college, like as I mentioned, just she and I were not talking at all. So I make it into my 20s. I think she's gone. And then, you know, last week when I was sharing the story with you about grad school and having a professor give this unprecedented assignment to do a semester-long art project of whatever we wanted, I decided radically in my mind (laughs) to doodle, just to do mindless doodles once a day for four months. And unwittingly, my art kid heard the call. She's a, she's a doodler, y'all. And she was like, oh, me? Me you haven't talked to in 20 years? You want to you wanna make together again? And it was, it, was a, it was a homecoming that was emotional. It was really emotional for me. Um, I, I had some grief around it, if I'm being honest, because we hadn't made things together in such a long time. And I was drawing again in exactly the way that I was here to draw. Like that, that was the feeling I had in my bones. And I suspect that all of you listening to this, whatever it is that you love to make, whether it's rewiring rewiring carburetors. I don't even know if you rewire carburetors. Like I know nothing about carburetors, but whether it's working on cars or working on hair or working on urban design or poetry or whatever, whatever it is that you would do on a desert island with no one else around, (laughs) that's, that's your art kid. And I really believe that this is one of the biggest parts of despair on our planet and it maybe it doesn't sound as sexy or seductive as a lot of the other theories out there about why (laughs) humans are so uncomfortable in their own skin as they get older I think a huge part of it is that most of them have told their art kids to shut the fuck up and and then subsequently try to create without the part of themselves that is the gatekeeper for their most authentic work. She was the gatekeeper for my most authentic work and I told her to stop talking to me. (laughs) And so when she came back online, it was like I was getting my long lost best friend back. And this is kind of how the exchange went. And I suppose I want to share this with y'all because at some point, everyone listening to this podcast, I suspect, is going to renegotiate their relationship with their art kid where they wouldn't be listening to this first of all, or has already done so and maybe could use a little validation for what that's like. So when I started drawing again like this in 2012, I had... I wouldn't have viewed it this way at that time, but this is what I would say happened now looking back. I would say that I basically lost my damn mind (laughs) in the best way. And I, you know, I just like grabbed my art kit and I was like, I miss you so much. I'll never let you, I'll never let you go again. I'm so, so sorry. Like I'm going to, we're going to do so much work together. I promise I'll never ignore you again. And like (laughs) a person who's been completely 
neglected for almost two decades, she snubbed the shit out of me. (laughs) She was like, cool, like I'm here to doodle with you, but I do not like you. We are not cool. I do not have any desire to do any of these plans you have. We are not buddies. Like, I don't care what you say to me. I don't care that you will never talk to me again. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Like, this is 100% the energy I was getting back, by the way. And I, I didn't view... I didn't view her as an entity at that time, but the energy that I was getting back was very much like, hey, if you think that we're going to be cool, you have another thing coming. Like this is going to take years to fix Borelli, you know, but we continued to doodle together. That was her function. She was thrilled to be listened to, thrilled. She'd just been sitting around, um, being traumatized by me, honestly. Like, that's what I had done. I had traumatized my kid. It's what we do to our human kids when we ignore them. It's what we do to our human kids when they lose their minds and tantrum and freak out. And we tell them, hey, you're being crazy. Stop that. It's embarrassing me. <laughs> like, that's what I had done to my art kid. Her tantrums looked irrational to me. And it was only when I was an adult that I realized, oh my gosh, that was the only way she knew how to tell me what a terrible mistake I was making. She's a kid, you know. So we we start doodling together. Of course, I have this luxurious year and I'm trying to make all these plans with her. She has no desire. And I start getting requests to do custom work and you know, when we reconnected, my art kid and I, I promised her, I will, I will not ignore you for, for the capitalistic man again. Like I, you know, like it's you and me. And she basically said, I'm sorry, like that's not going to happen. Like if you want to keep doodling together, cool, but don't try to make plans with me. And so I reluctantly took a commission, a very small one in 2014, 2013, sorry. And I remember at the time being really scared. Like, I don't know if this is a good idea. I just got back in communion with her. And I don't know how introducing business to this relationship, I don't see how that's a good idea. But the truth was, I didn't really have a choice. She she wasn't coming online with anything I wanted to do with her. And interestingly, and maybe even ironically, As I began to take more and more clients, that was what our relationship needed the most. Um, It took my focus off of her, and we began to repair decades of damage, you know. But it wasn't, honestly, y'all, it wasn't until Brayden was born that she and I really started to talk again. And it's because I'm with this little two and a half year old human who has a intimate relationship with his art kid. They talk (laughs) all day, every day. They're one at this point. There is no separation between Brayden and his kid. And yes, he's actually a kid, but his inner kid and him are so tight. And just watching him and experiencing him has given me so much insight into how to further and more rapidly repair some of the deep wounds that my kid still has with me. And 
So I want to talk a little bit about that. And I, <laughs> I want to expand upon it a little bit from the perspective of parenting advice, which feels a little bit crunchy <laughs> because I, if I'm being honest, I don't like parenting advice. I resisted reading a single parenting book until after Brayden was born. And in the two and a half years of his life, I've only read three. And I want to reference the most recent book that I've read um, by far my favorite, although the three that I've chosen, I have to say, were pretty good. And I'll leave links in the show notes if you want to check them out. Any of my friends, mama or daddy or otherwise. <laughs> um, the book that I want to reference directly in this episode is Good Inside by Dr. Becky Kennedy. I resisted not only reading this book for a long time, but I also <laughs> really resisted exploring any of Dr. Becky's work in spite of how many of my mother friends insisted I would love her. Um, I generally don't love parenting advice people. <laughs> I usually feel not only not helped by a lot of the resources that they offer, but also in some ways harmed. And I don't know if I can describe that succinctly in this episode, so it's like a topic for another time. But I think a lot of parents can relate to that. I think there's this increasing skepticism around a lot of parenting support. And so I, I really, I really just kind of ignored a lot of my, my mom friends who were like, you need to check out Dr. Becky. And kind of quite by accident, although probably not totally by accident, um, her TED talk popped up in my YouTube feed, which I, I don't look at. The only time YouTube happens on my phone is when once in a while Brayden watches Rafi. <laughs> and so one day I pull up YouTube and there she is and I listened to her TED talk and I cried and went out and immediately got her book and then cried some more. <laughs> and I want to share a couple of the things that she shared in her book that I very much believe is connected to my art kid, your art kid, everyone's art kids. Interestingly, human kids and art kids are identical in most ways. So the crux of Good Inside, just as some context, is Dr. Becky's philosophy that all children and all parents no matter what behaviors they exhibit, no matter how toxic and destructive in the earth that they are, are good inside. And to the extent that we display really messed up behaviors and do really awful things is to the extent that we've been wounded, but that there's this core goodness in all of us. And that is probably why her work honestly has exploded. Because when you listen to her, there's this sense that she carries that energy into everything she says. There's this sense of deep permissioning explicitly and implicitly that you are a awesome person. And I really, I have some pretty gnarly shame. Maybe some people would be surprised to find I have some pretty gnarly shame around parenting, like really, really angry voices that I've been kind of contending with the last two and a half years about how terrible of a mother that I am. And that maybe that feels weird to some people. Um, cause 
Brayden's awesome. Our family's doing fine. Well, I'm more than fine. We're great. Um, and I think that is probably like a story for another time, but it, it speaks to how pervasive this type of shame is in spite of like really positive circumstances, you know? So, so that's the context of her work. I think that's the crux of her work and maybe why I felt so drawn to it, but she shared and she shares so much in this book that I couldn't even begin to talk about, but I want to share two things that she talks about. I want to tell a story about how it plays out in my life with my son. And then I want to talk about how it plays out in my relationship with my art kid. And when I was, before I share some of the stuff from her book, I want to segue into this. It's a little bit of a tangent, but it's relevant. When I was thinking about naming this podcast episode, I was really going back and forth on if I should name it art kid or art parent. And ultimately, I really wanted to focus on the art kid in this podcast episode. But ultimately, when you start reconnecting with your art kid in like a really intimate way, you're also reconnecting with your art parent too. Because your art kid has no desire to work with you in any meaningful way if your art parent is toxic as shit. And mine mine was until pretty recently. Honestly, until very recently. My art parent has only recently become much nicer because of Brayden. So I want to talk about that a little bit, but maybe in slightly less abstract terms, let's dive into some story time. So, so Dr. Becky says in her book, among a bajillion other things, this is one of my favorite takeaways from her book. Parents, including art parents, <laughs> including art, like I was an art parent the moment I was born, by the way, like maybe we should, I know this isn't one more quick tangent before we dive into Dr. Becky, but Brayden is an art parent. He has an art parent inside of him already. It's not very strong yet, <laughs> but he in some ways is more of an art parent to his art kid than I am right now. He knows how to care for his art kid really, really well, simply because he listens to his art kid seamlessly right as that relationship gets taxed the art kid has more and more of a need for a conscientious art parent and there's a period in all of our lives where that conscientiousness just isn't there and it's why most of us including Pablo Picasso um you know who famously said it took me four years (laughs) to paint like Raphael and a lifetime to paint like a child you know, he lost his art kid too, you know, like this, this happens to, I believe all of us. And maybe there's some people who would disagree. You know, I would say that probably the disconnection from our art kids happens on a spectrum, but I do think that all of us to some extent have a sever with our art kid because the world, the planet that we are on right now is very disconnected from that part of itself collectively. There's like a sense on the planet that it's being run by children. I don't know. I think we've all heard that at some point in our lives. Like, oh, it's like humans are just like a bunch of children running the place. I would say 
no, it's a bunch of people ignoring their children, (laughs) their inner children who are screaming like, hey, that's not what we do. That's not what we're here to do. And we are just aggressively ignoring them, you know. So, so Dr. Becky, did you ever think I was going to circle back? I did. (laughs) She, she says so much, but these two things that I feel so deeply from her book that really relate to this podcast episode is there's a sense that when we're trying to serve our children, that their happiness is very important and protecting them therefore from fear and stress and sadness is also important that's i mean that sounds pretty much on par with my presumptions about parenting you know but there's been some voices not just her, not just dr becky's but other voices in the last five to ten years especially saying that the research is not showing that that actually children come in wired for struggle. This is a huge part of Glennon Doyle's work. She talks about this in her podcast and on her social media accounts. We're wired for struggle. Children are wired for pain. So Dr. Becky sort of reflects this in her research and in her book. And then she says, these are the two things that your kids really want. They don't need to be happy. What they need is to not be alone when they're stressed and in despair and struggling. They need to not be alone. The The real problem isn't the shit. The real problem is being alone in the shit. And then the second thing is when you're with them in the shit, they need to not feel crazy. They need you to validate their experience and to reflect back to them that it's completely okay. The behavior that they're exhibiting based on or I'm sorry, it's not necessarily the behavior because the behavior could be BS and need to stop, but that the feelings that they're having are completely allowed. And this was pretty mind-blowing to me and also kind of like, well, duh, like that makes sense. Like I can come on board with that. I read this a few months ago and Some of you may be familiar with Dr. Becky's work. Some of you may not. Some of you may kind of feel similarly to me when I share this information with you. Some of you may not. But (laughs) aside from that, I have to tell you that as soon as I started to try to implement some of these ideas with Brayden, I realized how completely not present (laughs) these ideas were in my childhood. And honestly, in most childhoods, even today, like I, I think that millennials and Gen Z parents are trying really hard to implement some of the ideas that Dr. Becky is sharing in her book, which is why it's such a popular book and why her work is so, you know, consumed right now by modern parents. But I was shocked as I started trying to do some of these things with my child to realize that I had almost no personal experience to lean on from when I was parented. And my parents were vastly better than their parents, right? Like they learned a ton about what not to do from their parents. They did so much better for my sisters and I than were done for them. They both, um, my mother specifically has a background in child development, right? 
And a lot of these more nuanced ideas were just, they just weren't a thing (laughs) back then, right? And I started to realize how knee-jerk it was when I was losing it as a little, like a little, little, like a one-year-old and a two-year-old. I don't really have any memories from those years, but I do remember three, four, five, six, and on. (laughs) And I have lots and lots of memories of just losing it, being so dysregulated for reasons that my parents had no clue about (laughs) that didn't make any sense to them, right? And in their feelings of not knowing what to do, leaving me alone with that or completely unintentionally gaslighting me. It's okay. You're fine. Why are you crying? It's, there's nothing to be scared of, right? Like I, w- I was shocked. Oh man, <laughs> these are not intuitive things. This is revolutionary, this stuff in this book, right? So I want to share with you the first time that I successfully actualized this with Brayden because <laughs> I was so excited. First of all, I was like, oh, I, I could do, I can do this. I can do this with my kid. And then for two months, I was terrible at it. And I have to tell you that it was almost like Brayden knew that I had read a book because the minute that I started to try some of these things, he decided right at the same time to become an insane two-year-old. Like prior to November of last year, most of my parent friends were like, is your kid for real? Because he just really didn't exhibit any two-year-old energy at all. Like he, he's always been very gentle, very chill. Really, we never really seen him tantrum until very recently. And then all of a sudden, like it was as if he knew my mom read Dr. Becky and now game's on, you know? <laughs> and I, I was for two months, I have been failing at this. Like, really failing at it. And so, so part of the inspiration for today's podcast episode, by the way, was this, it happened just this morning. This is fresh off the apple tree here. So this morning, Austin ISD decides to delay school for two hours. On a side note, it's 25 outside and it's considered extreme temperatures. (laughs) But we're in the South. The Ohio in me thinks that's hysterical. But I also know that if it ever hit 105 in Cleveland, everyone would lose their minds. So it's a big deal when it gets into the 20s down here. And Brandon is only in like a little half-day Montessori. So when AISD just delayed their school day by two hours, you know, his teacher was like, yeah, we're just going to close the school for the day. So Brandon wakes up this morning. I say, hey, there's no school today. Um, Why don't we go to the library downtown? He's only been there once and he loves it. For my Austin friends listening to this, you know, the downtown library is gorgeous. Um, There's this huge, like, I I don't know, I want to say it's like two stories tall, like red cuckoo clock in the lobby that, you know, slowly swings back and forth. He just, the minute I told him we were going downtown today, he's like, cuckoo, he's so happy. We get downtown we 
run into story time. He's thrilled. He's doing all the dances. He's clapping his hands. He's listening to the stories. You know, story time ends. We look at some books. We walk around outside. We go up and down the stairs, up and down the stairs, you know, all of Brayden's favorite things to do. And then it's time to go. And the minute I transition and I, I'm still, y'all, I'm still, (laughs) I'm still, not used to this new Brayden. Like it's been about two months, but I forget still that I can't just turn to him like I used to for most of his life and say, okay, we're going now. And he would turn back to me and say, okay. So I make the mistake of doing that and he falls to the ground. (laughs) No. And I, so I stumble through that exchange not terribly, not great. I get him into his coat. We get outside. And once he's out of the building, he stops screaming. We get to the parking garage. He's happy again. He actually helps me pay for our parking ticket. Um, he's so excited to do that. We we get back to my car. And I realize as we get back to my car, and, and this story, by the way, it should be noted, is not a story that every parent has gone through, but every parent has gone through a version of. And when I say every parent, I mean every parent of anything ever in life. Like maybe you don't have biological babies or humans (laughs) in your care, but if you've created anything from your heart and soul, you have had an experience like the one I'm about to describe. (laughs) So he's pooped. And I have left his diaper bag in the car overnight, so the diaper wipes are now a brick of ice. (laughs) And there's no way for me to clean my kid. So I have to wrestle him, and he's now re-tantruming again as he realizes that I'm about to put his poopy butt into the car seat with this gigantic green coat on, which he hates because it's huge. (laughs) And I'm strapping him in against his will, and he's really letting me have it and I do the classic mom thing here's a cracker here's your water I'm gonna go put on Raffi you know (laughs) he settles down I'm recollecting myself and up until this point I have kept it together my voice has not gone up um I've been acknowledging his feelings and we have been moving through them together (laughs) and all has been grounded for the most part So I get down to the first level of the parking garage and as I'm pulling up to the gate where you put in your ticket to get out, I realize that it's just been designed terrible. It's terribly designed. There's no way for me to turn in any conceivable way up to the gate, the, uh, the ticket holder for the gate. So I like swing in and I open my door and I step out to feed the ticket into the slot. And as I do that, Brayden in the back seat interprets that I'm leaving the car and screams at the top of his lungs, Mommy! It was so arbitrary. It, he has screamed Mommy at me so many times and has never done anything. But in that moment, it was just like, it was the straw in the camel. And I turn my head around over my shoulder and I, I shriek at the top of my lungs. And I, I know it was loud because there was like three people coming into the garage, um, like waiting at the gate who heard me do it. And they all stared at me. <laughs> I screamed, Brayden! And he shuts up immediately because 
I I very seldomly scream at him. Like I screamed, y'all. And then it wasn't enough, by the way. I, it, like, I was so angry that I kept going. And I said, dude, you need to chill out. Stop. You need to chill out. Stop. I said it twice in a row, yelling it. And then I say, I am not leaving you. What is your deal? And I slam the car door and I peel out of the garage and he's dead silent. And I am pretty mortified because I've just screamed in front of a bunch of people and my kid. And we're driving along Cesar Chavez towards the highway in Austin and he's quiet, right? He's doing the thing that I really just wanted. I wanted him all day to be quiet. But I also know from some of these books and specifically Good Inside that he's also in despair, right? You know, I've just, his, one of his primary sources of support in his very short life has just lost it on him. And that feels very dysregulating and unsafe. And he's sitting back back there in that feeling and I consider briefly for a moment saying nothing. I just, I'm exhausted. I just don't want to deal. And then I remember the advice that blowing up on him isn't the problem. And this is like, I still am having a hard time with this idea. And also I can see how it plays out in my own life as a human kid and also how it has played out in my art kid's life. The problem isn't the shrieking. The problem isn't asking Brayden what his deal is in front of like five people. (laughs) The problem is if I leave him alone in that. And it's interesting because in this book, Good Inside, she talks about how the research shows that when parents leave their kids in the shit, kids will most of the time gaslight themselves because it's easier to do that than to acknowledge that their parents are dysregulated and don't have it together. Like they would rather believe that you're godly and um, omnipresent and that they're the problem, right? So I take this deep breath. We're like, we're getting onto the highway. It feels like the terrible time to do it. And I, and I talk over my shoulder and I say, dude, and I'm, I'm still mad, right? So I don't even have a nice voice when I'm saying this to him. I say, dude, did you think I was going to leave you when I opened the door? And I I hear him back there go, yeah. And I I said, Brayden. And I'm looking, I, I guess I want to share with you that I was not super nice because I don't think in hindsight that it matters, right? I said, Brayden, I will never leave you without telling you. I said, were you scared that I was going to leave you? And he said, yeah. And that, and then it was at that moment that I softened. And I said, I'm so sorry. I said, I know how that feels. And I said, I'm so sorry that you were scared. And I wish I hadn't yelled at you. I said, in the future, if I'm going to leave you, I will let you know. And he's, he's totally quiet. And I'm driving on the highway now. And I'm thinking, I don't think that did a single thing. Like that felt really weird. I, he's probably still traumatized, you know, 
And so I turn Rafi back on, thinking it was an exercise in futility. (laughs) And the minute Rafi comes back on, I hear my child in the backseat go, Rafi's on! And he bursts into jubilant song, and I realize that he has been totally healed by this exchange. Like, that instantly he his stress was replaced by comfort. I Is this relevant to your life at all? Can you think of times where you were just in the total weeds with life and then someone that loves you or someone that gave a shit sat with you in that and validated your experience like that was it (laughs) and in that moment your whole body re-regulates itself almost instantly this the reason I know that this works for my kid is because this is how it's worked for me with my husband I picked Jason as my life partner because he's the only person I've ever been with in a romantic way that was able to do both of those things and I've been able to reparent huge parts of myself because of that like Even when I'm being ridiculous, (laughs) y'all, even when I'm being insane, Jason, for whatever reason, has no problem hanging out in that and validating my experience. He will not validate my behavior, by the way. Like he's told me straight up like that needs to not happen again. (laughs) But it was, it was through that relationship that I started to really see the validity of this book, Good Inside. And interestingly, a lot of the interactions I've had with Jason in the past 10 years we've been together have been a huge resource for me reading this book and then moving some of that information into my relationship with Brayden. I know this was maybe a little bit of a deep dive into like parenting junk and maybe a lot of people listening to this have already shut off that episode because they're not parents and that's so boring to them. And I suppose I say this because I used to be one of those people. I really didn't have any interest in parenting stuff. It just felt completely not relevant to my life. And maybe this disclaimer would have been better served earlier before those folks shut off the episode. But in case you're one of those folks that's about to shut it off, stick with me for a little bit because this metaphor of the parking garage is so relevant to your art kid. Your art kid does not need you to protect them. And this is honestly how I felt after I reconnected with mine, you know, a decade ago. I felt pretty ashamed of myself. And I just wanted to like put her in a sweet little bubble and take her into my home art studio and like do lots of beautiful magical things together but never expose her to any like trauma outside in the world you know and then of course like I said earlier that didn't work at all (laughs) um my art kid didn't not, not only did she not need that she didn't want that she's wired to be shit on and I, I know I'm swearing a lot. I know I swear a lot in general in a lot of podcast episodes. I find myself feeling like I'm doing it more in this one, but it's because I really do feel like a lot of those words are relevant 
to the relationship that she and I have had, you know, over the course of our lives together. And she just, as Dr. Becky and others have said, is wired to struggle. But what she absolutely can't handle is being left alone in that. And she can't handle being gaslit. And that's, I did both of those things en masse when I was coming up as a young teenager and into my 20s and early 30s. You know? Like, I'm trying to (laughs) write some lesson plans that I have to submit to my principal when I'm 25 years old on a a Sunday night. And she pops up and she's like, wouldn't it be nice if you got your sketchbook out right now and made some, you know, doodles? (laughs) And I, you know, you know, when I was younger, I used to like tell her to shut up. (laughs) But by the time I got into my 20s, I just ignored her. You know, like, I, what are you, why are you even here? (laughs) I'm, I'm lesson planning right now. And like Brayden in the backseat of the car, you know, there was an element of, oh, I guess I'm the crazy one because I thought Becca wanted to make art with me. We used to do it all the time, but now she's being silent. So I guess I'm the problem. And then she stopped coming around like at all. So So I want to wrap the episode with a similar story to the parking garage story with Brayden, but I want to talk about it in the context of being an art parent and being a good art parent, because I'm learning to reparent my art. I'm learning to reparent my art kid, but I'm also learning to reparent my parent. (laughs) My art parent is learning to be a much better parent and It's been really fascinating the last few months, especially because for the longest time, I have had this problem and I feel a little, I have to be honest, I still feel a little uncomfortable talking about it. Usually by the time something makes it to this podcast, I feel like I've worked through most of the weird energy, but this one is still, it feels a little bit, I don't know sad for me to admit this, but it's important to this episode. And and it was coming up earlier today to share it. So I love teaching. I have a master's in art education. Teaching is something that I'm passionate about and I always want to do it. But for as long as I can remember any of my art teaching experiences, whether it was, you know, when I was teaching preschool, kindergarten through fourth grade art, um, you know, working with corporate folks, doing workshops here in Austin, working at Laguna Gloria, doing private workshops. There was this experience that I would have over and over again, and I couldn't seem to to do better. And it was around people who were getting triggered in my class. And I didn't understand it at the time. I just knew that it was happening. I could feel that it was happening. And it would, you know, I've talked a little bit about this in past episodes. I don't want to re-talk about it now, but generally, and looking back, what I realized is that their art kids were getting triggered, you know, that their art kids were 
mad and wounded and hadn't been listened to for a long time. And something in that history with these students of mine would get triggered and it would come up and I would feel it. But because my art parent was so completely incapacitated, I wasn't able to help them. There was this certain type of student that I could never help. And it it was less of a problem when I was a younger teacher. But as I got older, it started to really bother me. And recently, I was teaching a workshop. And this this happened. This student of mine admittedly was, you know, it, if I'm being honest, it kind of caught me off guard because the student of mine was a design, a design major. And for whatever reason that I'm not terribly sure about, got completely lost in my class. And I, I realized pretty quickly that it wasn't totally my fault because all the other students were not lost. But I felt responsible and immediately I started to be like, oh, I I don't think I can help this person. Like, you know, and I I went home that night and I really was beating myself up for it. I thought, I just, (laughs) I don't want to do this again. This makes me not like teaching. I feel like I'm letting down this small percentage of students every time I teach. And I don't want that feeling. I want all of the people that work with me to get something positive out of this experience, you know? And I, I realized all of a sudden, just just reflecting on this um, after the first night of teaching, that it was because my art parent was pretty embarrassed at how she had been doing most of her life. And... I realized that it didn't have to be that way anymore because my art parent actually is much better, much better. So I go back the second day of this workshop and, you know, I sit down with this person. We talk pretty directly and they say so kindly and so honestly, I just, I need direction. This type of class, I guess, just isn't a good fit. And I said, oh, direction, no problem. And it was interesting because prior to just a few months ago, that was, it was too hard for me, right? And suddenly we were communicating. I gave her a bunch of direction. And within minutes, she was blowing the class out of the water with this really beautiful work. And I... I started to realize that when your art kid comes back on the scene, so does your art parent. And the collaboration between these two parts of ourselves are where it's at. I share this, I feel like this maybe was a little long-winded and maybe in some ways felt a little bit abstract or a lot abstract and maybe only parts of it resonate in a really clear or explicit way. But I share this episode today because I really truly believe that when we run up against makers of 
any kind that seem to be winning. And I hate using the word winning because that like conjures up all kinds of capitalistic, gross, you know, colonialist, patriarchal things. Um, I don't mean winning in that way. I mean winning in so far as they're like doing the work that they're here to do and they're happy and they're, you know, like, and not happy in that fake, like performative kind of way, but in that deep grounded, you know, resilient kind of way, the kind of way where people can get like beat up by life and still hang tough, you know, because they're doing the work with their art kid that they're here to do. And their art parent is protecting the heck out of them. Um, that is how you know, I think, when someone is making in a way that you really admire, whether they're a professional football player, whether they're a, you know, a motivational speaker, whether they're, you know, the, the person at the retail clothing store that you shop at and is super awesome to you all the time. And you wonder how they have such a great energy, right? I don't mean to suggest that it's really important for me to not suggest in this podcast as often as I possibly have that really great creative capacities have to be famous or celebrity somehow, right? That actually some of the most powerful acts of authentic creative work in tandem with art kid and art parent are happening in these very quiet, humble parts of society that no one ever sees. I walk up to the corner store in our neighborhood. There's this little vegan market and restaurant. And every time I go in there and talk to the couple that owns that place, I leave wondering how I, f- I just immediately feel better. <laughs> how- and they're such a staple in our neighborhood. They're always supporting the community in all these different ways and spreading this creative energy and love throughout the neighborhood and I feel it in these interactions with them and I always end up leaving wondering how they're so good at that like those kind of people I I don't I don't know if maybe one day they'll end up amassing like tons and tons of vegan stores all over the country and like doing something on television or writing books and traveling the world and being super like prominent but probably not they're they don't strike me as that type at all they strike me as the type that is very content and peaceful and happy doing this work boots on the ground here in this little tiny south austin neighborhood those people in some ways are the best examples of people who know their art kids and their art parents. When you see people making things in alignment with their art kids and art parents, you just, you feel it, you feel it. And this, this is huge, right? We talked a little bit about this in the last episode because we've been talking increasingly the last months about making art with something bigger. Our kids are wired to that thing that's bigger. My son is wired to that thing that's bigger. Um, I used to be in deep connection as a one-year-old, as a two-year-old, as a three-year-old, as a four-year-old with that thing that was bigger. And then a huge part of me kind of 
severed from that thing because most of the world is also severed from that thing. But the art kid never, ever is severed and she never, ever leaves. And this is what makes your art kid terrifying to the status quo on the planet. Your art kid, this, the planet isn't quaking in its boots from like Thor, right? Like the Thor, you know, Thor from Marvel movies, right? Like, isn't that what we think of when we think of like the type of energy that is going to like really create some fear (laughs) or create some like nervousness and the energies that we want to overcome on the planet? Like that's what we picture. And I guess what I want to posit in this episode is it's the kid. It's not Thor, per se like Thor has his place like he's more of the art parent right (laughs) the kid is the little tiny innocent vulnerable one that is deeply connected to that bigger thing that knows exactly what you're here to do and when you make with your kid and when your parent protects your kid it is game-changing it's huge I know this podcast episode has been abstract, but like this is one of the topics that we'll continue to unpack over the course of this podcast, also in on-demand workshops and things coming up down the pike, I promise at some point when it, when it happens, because at this point, my art kid and parent are figuring it out, <laughs> but I thought this was a good place to start. Can we acknowledge that our art kid's are real and that they have a sovereign experience. I, I'm not the only person to say this. Like there's all kinds of interesting research on different selves that we all have, you know, one of them being a kid. There's probably all kinds of psychology and things I could have tried to weave into this episode. And I didn't because I'm not a psychologist. I don't know enough about that. I do, however, know that the kid is real and the kid is an artist and the kid is an artist who is connected to something bigger and to the extent that you can get on board with your kid and then protect your kid as the art parent should man creative life is never the same again and I don't I I I don't want to suggest as we come up to the end of this episode I don't want to suggest any type of worldly stuff is going to happen here, right? Like there's lots of narratives around figuring stuff out and becoming famous and making lots of money. And those are all really old, outdated paradigms that don't work at all. And I'm certainly not trying to shun prosperity or say that money making is bad or that it's wrong to want those things. All of those things are very, very valid. But what I guess I'm trying to say is that your art kid doesn't care about those things. <laughs> like your art kid would do the, this work, would do the work that it, he or she does, whether you make a penny or not, whether you live on that you know, deserted island or not. If nobody sees the things that you two make together, your art kid would still do it because that's how kids are. (laughs) And maybe, you know, money and fame and all of the, you know, material things that you hope for will happen. 
but the kid doesn't care. And honestly, the parent doesn't care either. The joy that comes from working in tandem with these two parts of yourselves in an aligned way is more than enough reward. More than enough. I I still don't totally know what the future holds for my kid. She and I have not been drawing together very much at all. She and I have been doing this podcast. And I want to wrap up with this final story because <laughs> this is a great example of, of my art parent working with her. Because I told you a story about my art parent helping another student, but I, I'd like to share a quick story about how my art parent helps my art kid. So, so in 2022, my art kid said to me, I really love the podcast. I want to do that more often. Can you make it a priority? And I said, yeah. And I I remember getting on at that time, and some of you remember this episode, and I said, hey, I'm getting guidance to to record once a week, so I'm just going to do it. I don't have a lot of time. I have a little kid at home, so it's just going to kind of be rough, and whatever slop comes out, is, is going up. And, and then it didn't, right? And then life happened. And I kind of told my kid, I'm sorry, like, I'm trying to raise a human kid, and I don't have time. And admittedly, she was kind of like, yeah, well, I'm used to that. So go do your thing. <laughs> and, and then I spent a year with my son And he was showing me, like schooling me hard (laughs) and what it looks like to really listen to your kid. And so I started recording episodes again in November of last year and have, it's felt, it's felt different this time. And it's not just felt different to me. It's felt different to her. Like she's like, Hey, thanks. And she, she regards me differently and my output is better when she trusts me and knows that I'm going to show up weekly to do this work with her. So, so I started taking clients again last year and clients are important. They pay for things and I like working with clients. I love the limitations of clients. I love being told this is where the boundary is. I love using my creativity in a tiny little box Um, And I'm at a place in my career where I get to really pick who I work with. So always I end up working on really fun projects. I love clients. But one of the things that my art kid doesn't appreciate (laughs) is that I still have a tendency to overpromise with clients and then therefore underdeliver with my kid. And I, I said yes to a client months ago for a design that was going to happen now in January. And it was for, it was for a nonprofit and I, they only had a certain budget and it was a project that was very interesting to me and it's for a nonprofit that I feel passionate about. And so I decided that I was willing to work with their budget, even though it was, you know, drastically 
it was much less than I would normally charge, you know? And I, I said, okay. And and interestingly, this is one of, and this is a topic for another time because I kind of feel like money is a whole thing that is so deep and nuanced when it comes with artists. And I really hope to do some episodes about money this year. But interestingly, I have found, and a lot of people that work in finance and work with money will say this, it's very true. When you undercharge, there is a weird level of respect on both ends of the project that is lacking. And it's not intentional. It's just how it is. Um, I feel very respected by this client. I know this client feels very respected by me. And because there's a, a smaller amount of money involved, there's just a sense of it being less serious on both sides. So I send off this draft, the first draft, I don't know, a few weeks ago. And I get back, you know, this really like chill, normal response. Like, here's some things we want to change. We love it. It's great. Just here's what we want you to do differently. And then they said, um, we're wondering if you could do a second version. We don't know if that's possible based, you know, in the pricing structure we have, but we figured it couldn't hurt to ask. And normally I would be like, no, (laughs) no, because if I say yes to this, now I'm going to be making even less than I'm already making. And I'm going to have to be digging into my art kids time. But weirdly, I find myself having worse boundaries with clients when there's less money involved. And that's one of the interesting ironies of pricing. A story for another time. So I say, sure, I could do that. It'll be easy. It'll be simple. I'll just draw it up really quickly. And then wouldn't you know, it wasn't easy. It took me forever. I dumped a ton of time into it over the weekend. Brayden was home on Monday from school and then also home today from school. And my art kid was like tapping her foot at me all weekend like, hey, I really want to record an episode for Tuesday. And you're dumping all of this time into this second draft that you're not even getting paid for. Like, and it was in that moment that I, that my art parent who has been flexing her muscles more and more in the last two and a half years with my human kid was like, I'm so sorry. You're right. I won't do this again. And I, I opened the, I have an app on my phone and I make notes of like, when I take new projects, like things to remember. And I put down in this notes app explicitly, like, um, will only do second, you know, offerings for adjusted income or adjusted expectations. I, I 100% should have told this client, sure, I can do this second thing for you. But now the project brief changes. Like, I know you don't have any extra money, which means, but, but the payment is going to be time. Like I need way more time, way more time. I should have said that that would have been protecting my kid. That's what an art parent does for their art kid. Because your art kid does live in the world where you have to pay your bills and do the things. This isn't about just like going out into the fields with your kid and ignoring all responsibilities. That doesn't help them either. They need you to eat. 
And immediate, immediately after I, I like had this inner chat with her and like as I was cooking lunch today and she immediately chilled out and she's like, you know what? I think you could probably still record with me today and get that draft done. And maybe that's bonkers and I'm totally off base, but I think it's going to work out. And she and I have had this lovely recording session together today. And I get to go into this client work with this really, really happy art kid. You know, I sometimes wonder, and I'm still learning about her, by the way, because we've been separated for a long time. But I sometimes wonder if that's why this second option that I thought was going to be a breeze wasn't because she was feeling pretty ignored over the weekend. We had a deal and she was watching me break it. And so she wasn't showing up for my drafting at all. And I don't always make perfectly in tandem with my kid. Like sometimes she is not a part of my art process at all. But a lot of the time she is. I think, I really think it's part of the allure of my work. I've mentioned this before and I'll mention it again. I'm not the best drawer in the room, not even close. And that makes some people wince. I think it makes them feel uncomfortable to hear someone seemingly, you know, dog on themselves. I I guess I don't feel weird saying it because I don't view it as a dog. In a lot of ways, I view it as a superpower. I don't think you need to, to be the best in the room at anything to be really, really important in your work and to really affect people's lives in a hugely positive way. I think that technical skill is increasingly becoming overrated. You know, we we lived in an, in many, many eras where technical skill was the thing. Like, what was your output? What was that like, right? Is it impressive? Or does it meet certain standards, X, Y, and Z? Um, I don't know. I feel like as generations upon generations of people get more and more sensitive to the energies around them, there go my dogs. They're getting, people are getting more and more attuned to the energy of the works that they interact with. And I think that there's an attunement to energy of art too, like a sense of, oh, this is sincere. It's in alignment. I, I, do, I do think that that is a huge X factor for makers. People can just feel when the stuff that you're doing is really with your kid and really with something bigger. They can feel it. This is also, I think, kind of relevant to AI, which is also an episode for another time. But I've had so many people say, aren't you afraid AI is going to take your job? No, (laughs) no, I'm not. I do think it's going to change everything, though, for sure. Um, But I think we are, because of the technologies and the rapid pace at which they're morphing and changing, I think that what humanity doesn't realize is there's a sense... Like I was listening to Tristan Harris, um, one of the creators of The Social Dilemma and also, you know, one of the original sort of people that worked on Facebook and Google and all these platforms. 
I was listening to him talk about AI at a summit online and he he quoted this famous quote and I don't remember the person who said it but it's you know we have paleolithic brains medieval institutions and godlike technology and that's the problem right and that's true and I I definitely understand why he shares that quote at a lot of his um speeches but what I really believe is happening is that I don't really I, I don't think our brains are that paleolithic anymore. Like I I know when you look around at the planet, that's not what you see. <laughs> and I'm very aware of that. And it makes complete sense that anyone would be completely confused by what I'm saying right now. But when I interact with people um, on a day-to-day basis, I'm just struck by how much more sensitive we all are now to energy. I think our brains are becoming much less paleolithic than we realize. And interestingly, that means that as we become more and more sensitive to energy, we'll also become more sensitive to artwork made by a computer. I, I can't speak for everyone else but I can tell you that the art some of my favorite works by humans that I've seen in real life in museums or in galleries or in studios of friends has an energy and a life force to it that AI art just does not have and people are going to really notice this more and more as AI AI art becomes more prevalent I really think interestingly AI art is going to increase the rate in which people's sensitivity to energy expands you know topic for another time a connection a deep and abiding connection to your art kid and protecting your kid with your art parent is is going to be huge in the era of ai i really think it is So let's unpack this beefy thing over the course of 2024, shall we? But I thought this was a good place to start. And I got to tell you, my kid is so freaking happy right now. (laughs) She is so happy. And, and I will say this, this episode has ended up being so much longer than I meant it to be. But now that we're on a roll, she's like shooting stuff, all kinds, all kinds of stuff at me to share with you. Whenever she and I have like a huge collaboration like this one, um, my art parent is she's gonna my art parent's gonna freak out tonight. And Brene Brown talks about this in her famous TED talk. It's like a vulnerability hangover, right? Your kid is not connected at all to what colonialist capitalist patriarchal whatever wants (laughs) it's connected to what something bigger wants and that feels dangerous your kid is dangerous and when you collaborate closely with your kid you can expect a hangover (laughs) a lot of the time not all of the time but a lot of the time I know I can tell you right now as soon as this is done I'm gonna edit it and put it up because if I don't I'll probably wait like six months or something to publish it um, making things with your kids sometimes feels very scary and, and it should because your kid is a huge threat to the status quo right now. And any parts of you that are still imbued with that status quo energy from the planet, 
are like kicking and screaming with your kid right now. (laughs) And that's when the parent comes up and says, nope, the kid has the reins. And I don't know what the future holds for my kid and my parent, but those two are vibing for the first time ever. And it makes me understand why Brayden is so important. I don't think all of us need to have human children, by the way, to experience this. Um, I think all of us can have this type of awareness shift in so many ways. The woman that does my hair here in Austin will never have children. She is one of the coolest people I know and, and will never have kids. She went this past year to Africa to do some work for a few months and met a nine-year-old there. And she said, I've never been chosen by a kid in my life. And I realized that I love it (laughs) and I don't need to have my own to learn about kids. And that's so true. And you don't even need to have a human kid relationship to understand about kids. There is so much about nursing the life of any creative thing that is deeply relevant to learning about your art kid and your art parent. This topic is for every single one of us, if we choose it. Until next time, I'm going to go drink a ton of water (laughs) and get this thing online before I can talk myself out of it. And I want you to know that because it happens to me too. And I look forward to talking to you next week. We look forward to talking to you next week. Until next time. Peace.